I can report. I just checked my SJSU right now while we were talking, and the class is full, so I don't have any spots to give away. If you are waiting to add the class, I don't have any spots. I think the add deadline is Friday. Yeah. Does that sound right? So this will be the last time I mention it, um, but I wouldn't expect there to be anything opening up. Okay, so last time we talked about motion of objects in two dimensions. We used the equations that we derive for constant acceleration to describe projectile motion. And that's very useful because there's a lot of things that are falling due to the influence of gravity and they travel in these uh, paths that are described by the projectile motion equations. Okay, so we'll see lots of examples of that. We have a lot of them on the homework, um, both last week and this week. But today we're going to talk about a different class of motion. Things moving in circles. So things don't move in circles if you just throw them in the air. If you just throw something through the air, it travels in a parabolic trajectory. We sort of saw pictures of that last time. We didn't explicitly derive that that shape was a parabola, um, but it is. And that's different than things that move in circles. So there's lots of examples of things moving in circles. Um, a couple of them are here. There's Jason Fox on a swing. A swing, although it's not going in a full circle, is always traveling in a path that's circular because it's constrained to be a fixed distance away from some axis. And the locus of points that's a fixed distance away from a particular point is a sphere in three dimensions or a circle in two. So a swing moves in a circular path or part of a circular path. A merry-go-round moves in circles. Planets and stars in binary systems move in elliptical orbits, but to good approximation, we can consider those circular orbits and treat how uh, satellites and planets move as objects moving in circles. Um, there's roller coaster rides, there's cars going around turns, there's all sorts of instances in, in the world around us where things are moving in circles or paths that are, at least for a small moment in time, circular. Okay, And so we're going to have a different set of equations, or one particular equation that describes how things in circular orbits move. It's actually, you can reference it from the funny pages. We'll, we'll derive that today. And we'll see that there's a, a large number of problems we can apply that particular formula to. Um, okay, so to start with, we're going to talk about acceleration. We've talked about acceleration already. It was one of the vectors that describes the motion of an object. Um, and today we'll talk about explicitly the components of acceleration that are in the direction of motion and the components of acceleration that are not in the direction of motion because they affect the object in different ways. That'll let us talk about things moving in circles and the component of motion perpendicular or the component of acceleration perpendicular to the motion we call the centripetal acceleration. So we'll talk about how things moving in circles have a particular acceleration and we'll do some example problems of that. And if we have time, we'll also talk about um, relative velocity, which is just a, a separate topic. But primarily, we'll be talking about things moving in circles. So let's consider an object, say a baseball. We've talked about how that would move if you throw it through the air. We have our equations of motion for constant acceleration. And if gravity is the only force acting on that, so let's say this is a little diagram. There's our baseball. Let's say it's moving to the right and we've got gravity pulling it down, we'd expect it to curve down. 
being pulled down, it will curve down. Um, and for the projectile motion problems, we said we're always going to ignore air resistance. Otherwise, the equations that we derive aren't usable. They require the acceleration be constant. And gravity provides a nice constant acceleration. But there's some things that aren't so convenient, like wind resistance. That's not constant. It depends on how fast the object is moving. You'll see that in lab four of the lab to this class, where you'll work out the, the projectile for a baseball moving with wind resistance. Um, it's very hard to solve analytically how that baseball will move. In fact, um, it's not a problem that physicists can solve in the modern day, where a baseball will land. We can do it numerically. We can't do it analytically, which is kind of crazy. It seems like one of the easiest, most straightforward calculations. A ball is flying through the air. Where will it land? Analytically means exactly by calculating. We can do it what we call numerically, which is sort of approximating what happens uh, at very close increments of time. Um, but we can't write a formula where we just plug in a bunch of different parameters and have it give us an answer. Okay, we can use computers to simulate what's going on and, and predict. Any event, the reason I mentioned wind resistance is it's a force that is always going to oppose the motion of an object. So if the object's moving to the right and there's drag or wind resistance, it's going to push back. So that's an example of a force that is in the direction of motion, or in this case, in the opposite direction as the motion. But that's different than what gravity's doing here. So a baseball is moving to the right, gravity's pulling it down. Okay, so we'll see what, uh, how those two different forces affect the baseball differently. Let's first consider any forces that are in the direction of motion. Okay, so in this example, that's the wind resistance. And so the ball's moving to the right. The force from the wind is pushing it to the left to slow it down. And so if the force is to the left, the acceleration it produces is to the left. So what does that mean? If an object's moving to the right, its acceleration is to the left, what is it doing? It's, it's slowing down. Right? In, in plain terms, it's slowing down. If this force were pointing to the right, what would the baseball be doing? Speeding up. Yeah, we could say it's accelerating, or we'd just say we could say it's speeding up. Um, okay, so we can understand that mathematically or, or graphically from the vectors as well. Um, acceleration is how much the velocity changes with respect to time. And velocity is a vector and acceleration is a vector. So if I have an initial velocity, I'll just call it v1, and an acceleration that's pointing to the left, then acceleration times some time gives me how much the velocity changes. So the change in velocity is to the left. So the final velocity, which I'll call v2, is going to equal the initial velocity plus any change to it. And I can just add up these vectors. If I have a vector v1 that's pointing to the right, and I have a vector v2, or I'm sorry, delta v that points to the left, 
then through graphical addition of vectors, I can say that the, the new velocity, v2, is the sum of v1 plus delta v. So using the tip-to-tail method, I get that the new velocity is a vector that's shorter than v1. So it's slowing down. If delta v were really large, if it were larger than v1, then this thing might actually turn around and start going in the other direction. So we can add graphically, and we can express that mathematically um, as well. So saying the acceleration is the final velocity minus the initial velocity, that's our delta v, divided by delta t. I could solve for the final velocity if I knew the initial velocity and the acceleration and time. Okay, so that's for a force that acts in the direction of motion. There are the vectors in the note. I just drew that, so I'm going to skip that slide. What about a force that's not in the direction of motion? Um, so gravity is a force that if the ball is moving at a moment in time, if it's moving horizontally, uh, gravity is acting vertically, and it's not in the direction of motion. It has no component moving it forward. There's no component pushing the ball forward. There's no component of gravity pushing the ball backwards. So is gravity going to change the speed of the ball? No. It's not because it's not making it go faster. It's not making it go slower. So it's not changing the speed. But if this is the only force acting on the ball, um, then there must be an acceleration due to that force. Okay, that's Newton's. I I keep, maybe I should have defined this the first day, but I keep saying that um, Newton's second law says every force gives rise to an acceleration. Okay, and we'll cover that in chapter four. So if there's a force pointing down, there's an acceleration pointing down. How is that consistent with saying that the, that the ball's speed is not changing? So it's changing, if it's not changing the speed, and so velocity, the velocity has to change. An acceleration is a change in velocity. But if its speed isn't changing, then its direction has to. Okay. Velocity is a vector. It has two parts. It has a speed and a direction. So acceleration can change either of those. In the last example, it changed the speed. In this example, it's going to change the direction. So what happens to a baseball that's moving horizontally? It curves down. Okay. So its direction will change. And so we can do the same sort of diagram. We can say there's initially some velocity pointing to the right, and then there's some change in the velocity, some change in the velocity due to gravity pulling it down, and that change is down. And as a result, the vector sum of these two things is vector v2. And if delta v is small, then v1 and v2 are approximately the same length. Otherwise, in other words, the speed isn't changing, but clearly the direction is. So we can use these vector diagrams to understand how forces in different directions are going to affect the speed and direction of an object's motion. Okay, so that's really important in understanding what goes on in circular motion. So let's consider an object moving in a circle. 
let's pick two points that are um, that lie along that circle that are near each other and we'll describe the motion of the object at point one and then the motion of the object an instant later at point two and let's consider what the acceleration has to be in order to keep them moving in a circle okay. in a particular circle that has a radius capital R okay, so if we know that the object is moving in this circular path so maybe that object is a car going around a, a turn. Right? We know it moves in a particular uh, circular path. We can figure out how strong the acceleration has to be pulling it in to make it move in that circle. And I'm going to work this out on the blackboard. It's in the notes as well. But um, I'll start with what's up here. If it's moving at constant speed, then the magnitude of the velocity at points 1 and 2 is the same. The length of these vectors is the same. And the motion is always along that direction, meaning the velocity is always tangent to the circle. Okay, so these different points, because they're different points on the circle, the direction is a little bit different. Tangent is, is the direction that's perpendicular to this, uh, this radius line. So. Let's consider those two points that lie in a circle of radius r. And let's say the distance between them is s. I guess we're calling it delta s. I'll be consistent with what's in the slide. Delta s, that's how much its position along the circle has changed. I can call this angle here delta phi. And from our definition of what an angle is, by definition, this angle when measured in radians is the arc length divided by the radius. So that angle is delta s over r. And if I calculate that angle using this formula, I will get a value in radians. Right? If delta s is 2 pi r, this object has gone all the way around the circle. And I'll get 2 pi r divided by r is 2 pi. Okay, So one full circle is 2 pi radians. If you'd like to work in degrees, you can convert 2 pi radians into 360 degrees. Okay, well, this little diagram describes where the object is at point 1 and 2. We can also look at a diagram that shows the velocity at point 1. That's drawn right here. It's moving in a direction that's tangential to the circle. So I'll take that arrow, and in order not to clutter this diagram up too much, I'm going to draw it over here. And at point 2, The direction has changed. I'm going to draw this vector v2. Over here. What do I know about the angle between these vectors? OK. So could you hear that in the back row? No? Then I can ask the people in the back row. What do we know about this angle? 
between v1 and v2. So let's see, you with the computer, right there. What do we know about this? What do you think about this angle? Can we say anything about it? Let me ask you this. If this angle delta phi were 0, what could we say about points 1 and 2? They'd be the same point. Okay, and what could we say about velocity v1 and v2? They'd be the same. And what would be the angle between those two vectors then? Okay, so if, if delta phi is 0, the angle between these two vectors is 0. Right? Uh, if delta phi is 180 degrees, what can we say about these two vectors? They're pointing in opposite directions, so what would be the angle between them? 180. So if this angle is 0, this angle is 0. This angle is 180, this angle is 180. So what can we say about this angle? It's the same, well, it's the same as delta, it's the same as this one. Okay, so I'm going to call this one delta phi as well. And you can work out using lots of similar triangles and drawing things. You can work that out exactly. Um, but it's always useful to check for a couple cases where you can know what to expect. Okay, so if this angle is the same as that angle and we have an expression for that, um, what we're trying to find is the acceleration. Um, acceleration by definition is a change in velocity with respect to time. And so it would be useful to know what the change in velocity is. Okay, so from our previous two diagrams, delta v is the distance from the end of v1 to the end of v2. There's delta v. If we take v1, we add to it the change in velocity, we get the final velocity. Okay, so delta v has to be the line that connects these two arrows. Okay, so we can write delta phi. If delta phi is, is small, then this length right here is about the same as that arc length. The difference between those two quantities become less and less significant as that angle gets small. So I can write that this angle is equal to delta V, its magnitude, divided by V1, or by V2, since they have the same length. So these are vectors. These are the magnitudes of those vectors. Okay, So just like here, we said the angle was the arc length divided by the radius. Here, the angle of this, this triangle is given by the arc length divided by the radius. And we're calling the arc length delta V, the radius V1 or V2. But we also know from above that that's equal to delta S over R. So let me manipulate this <coughs> equation I have right there a little bit. Um, let me multiply both sides by v1. So on the left, I have delta v 
And on the right, I have delta S times V1 over R. If I look at that, this tells me how the magnitude of the change in velocity. And if I know that, finding the acceleration is just a matter of dividing that by time. If we assume that this angle is small, then sine of delta phi equals phi. Okay, so here's a sine function. So this is uh, y equals sine of x. Here's y equals x. So for small angles, we can approximate sine of x by x. Okay, and that's essentially what we're doing when we say delta phi equals delta v over v1. And we can see that from saying that uh, this arc length and this chord are get closer and closer in length as this angle gets smaller. Okay, so if I know the change in velocity and I want to find acceleration, I just divide it by time. So let me divide both of these sides by time. And that gives me the magnitude of acceleration. And I can recognize this term right here. Delta S over delta T. Delta S was this. It was how far my object moved. Delta T is how long it took it to go that distance. So I have a distance divided by a time. What is that? That's the speed that it's moving at, at average velocity. And we're saying that uh, we're considering an object moving at constant velocity. So V1, the magnitude of V1 equals the magnitude of V2. I'll just call that, I'll call it all V. So I have a V squared over R. That's the magnitude of the acceleration for the object to move in a circle if it's moving at a constant velocity v and radius r. Uh, what direction is the object accelerating in? Towards the center, right. It's accelerating towards the center. Delta v was this way, towards the center of the circle. So this is just a magnitude. In order to say the uh, what the vector is, we also need a direction. Okay, and so what we will do is uh, we'll use a unit vector we'll call r hat. r hat is a unit vector that points out from the center of a circle. Okay, so r hat, when you see that, that just means you can read that as outwards. So if the acceleration is inwards, that's in the minus r hat direction. Okay, so this is a very key point 
So I, in the past, I haven't done this, but I decided I would write key points, put it up there, make a slide all of its own to say this expression you need to know. That tells you what the acceleration is for an object moving in a circular path if it has constant acceleration. I'm sorry, if it has constant, constant speed. An object moving at constant speed in a circular path of radius r will have an acceleration that's inwards and has magnitude v squared over r. And because we deal with so many problems where things move in circles, we need to know that expression in order to understand what the acceleration of those things are. Okay. Just like we do lots of problems where things are falling due to gravity, so it's very important that we know that the acceleration due to gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared down. We do lots of problems where things move in circles, so we need to know that the magnitude of that acceleration is v squared over r. It means, so it's, it's negative r hat, so if r hat, if that means outwards, negative r hat would mean inwards. So it's always being pulled into the center of the circle. Yeah. Okay, a couple important points. First is, if you have an object going around in a circle with constant velocity, is this acceleration constant? What's that? <laughs> is, the is the acceleration that I've written up there constant for an object moving in a circle? No. I hear no and yes. Okay, what are the reasons that it would be no? Why would you say, or let me say, why would you say that it is constant? So I asked, uh, if an object's moving in a circle with constant velocity, this gives its acceleration. Is this value constant? And I, so okay, so why would you say yes? Okay, so it, the acceleration needs to be this in order to keep it going in a circle. And if it keeps going in a circle, the acceleration must always be this. Therefore, it's constant. Why would you say no? So this expression may be constant. If the velocity isn't changing, the radius isn't changing, this expression may be constant. But this r hat, that means outwards, right? And the di which direction that is, is changing as it goes around the circle. Okay, so consider a point on the end of this fan, right? When the fan is going around in a circle, um, the acceleration of a point on the end of the fan is always inwards. Right, well initially inwards is gonna be up and to the right, but when it gets to the top, inwards is down. So the direction is changing. Okay. That acceleration is not constant. When something moves in a circle, it does not have constant acceleration. We cannot use the formulas that we've used so far that assume the acceleration is constant. So that's the other key point. Two key points, one is this expression will let you calculate the acceleration, or given the acceleration calculate velocity or the radius of the circle it's moving in. The second key point is that's not a constant value. So you can't use all of the equations of motion that we've derived so far.
those all assumed constant acceleration. Okay, so let's do some examples. Let's start with the Gravitron, which is a device that spins around at an amusement park. We're going to do a lot of examples of this particular uh, this particular ride. How many people have been on a ride that resembles this? Okay. We're just going to start with it going around in a circle, a big glorified merry-go-round. Uh, later on, we'll add the floor dropping out. We'll talk about why the floor can drop out and not have you fall down. Uh, for now, what we'll say is this thing spins around in a circle. You're standing on the edge. The period of revolution is four seconds. The radius is five meters. What is your acceleration when you're riding this? Okay, so let's organize our information with a drawing. The thing is spinning, so let me do a top view. And let me draw a person out here, a distance r equals five meters away. They're moving with some velocity, which I need to know in order to find the acceleration. Okay, when I see that this is a problem where something's going in a circle, I should immediately write down the formula for a, uh, for a centripetal acceleration, the acceleration that causes something to move in a circle. Okay, so I know the radius is five meters. I need to know the velocity, um, but I'm not told that. I'm told that the period is four seconds. Can I use that to find velocity? Gary? Okay, what, what should I do? Yeah, so velocity tells me how, how the displacement of an object in a given time. So it relates to time. I know, yeah, I know the circumference of the circle. Okay. Yeah, and I, I'm saying velocity. Really what I want is the speed. I have v squared here. This isn't a vector. This is just its speed. So I need to know how fast it's going. And I know that it takes four seconds to go around a five-meter radius circle. So I can calculate its speed. I can say that its distance around, I'll call that maybe p, the perimeter, is 2 pi r. Okay, so now you can see that the speed is the distance that something goes divided by the time it takes to do it. That's 7.9 meters per second. I've worked that out ahead of time. So I can plug that in. I can plug in my five meters. And I'll be able to solve for the magnitude.
you see this over there on the left, Peter? You can see that? Okay. So I get 12.3 meters per second squared. Okay, units are important. A lot of people screw up the units on acceleration. I don't know why. I just, I've seen it a lot. Let's check here. We've got a speed in meters per second. And we square that. So that gives us meters squared per second squared. And we divide that by meters. And that leaves us with meters per second squared. OK, so 12.3 meters per second squared. Is that a large velocity? I'm it's not a velocity at all. Is that a large acceleration or not? What do we have to compare that to? So we know how strong gravity is. Uh, gravity has a magnitude of, produces an acceleration with a magnitude of 9.8 meters per second squared. So we can say the acceleration is 12.3 meters per second squared. And it's perfectly fine to leave it like that. That's a valid value for the magnitude of the acceleration. Or I might choose to multiply it by g and divide it by 9.8 meters per second squared. Those two things are the same, right? So I'm just multiplying by 1 if I do that. Now lets me simplify those numbers a little bit. I haven't worked out the numbers, but it's going to be about 1.25 times g. So we might express an acceleration as a certain number of meters per second squared. You might also hear it referred to as a certain number of g's. You hear a test pilot withstood 4 g's, something like that. That's what it means. So 1.25 g's means an acceleration that's 1.25 times stronger than the acceleration due to gravity. Okay, And that's just the magnitude. The direction keeps changing as the object goes around in a circle. But we can just call that inward. by putting this r hat notation. That, that means outward. And the negative sign then in the opposite direction is outward or inward. OK, any questions on that problem? How hard is all this inward or outward? Um, it's always inward. Always. Something's moving in a circle. The acceleration is in towards the center of the circle. If the acceleration were outward, yeah. this object would not be curving in. It would be curving out. And it wouldn't be traveling in a circular path. It would be flying away. Yes? If you're asked for the acceleration, then yes. Okay. If you're asked for the magnitude of the acceleration, then you just need the, the number in the units. Okay. And so a lot of times in mastering physics, you'll have a text box that says like this. It'll say, um, what is the acceleration? And you have a box, right? And then it'll say meters per second squared inward. Right? If you see that, what it means is they've already filled in the direction of the units for you, and you just have to type in a number. Okay, so, right? so in that case, you wouldn't because it's already it's already done for you. Okay. okay. That being said, you're not always going to be using mastering physics. If I ask you the same question on a test, what is the acceleration? And I've drawn this little vector symbol over it. 
you have to write that in because that's part of the answer. And just because mastering physics fills it in for you sometimes doesn't mean that you never have to, to enter it, okay? So you need to make sure that that information is accounted for unless you're just asked for the magnitude of the acceleration. I chose to do that. I'm just changing the units. This one has units of meters per second squared. I just multiply by one, so it doesn't change the magnitude, but it changes the units because now the meters per second squared cancel out. And I'm using now G, I'm using it as a unit. I, the only reason I do that is because it's commonly done. Um, you'll often hear about how many Gs of acceleration something feels. And it's done because it's a way of. Well, here's why it's done. If I say um, there was an acceleration of 12.3 meters per second squared, you know that that's a little bit stronger than the acceleration you feel due to gravity. So you have some sense of how strong that is. If I said the acceleration was 47 feet per second squared, you may or may not know if that's strong. If I expressed it in centimeters per millisecond squared, you may have no idea. Right? And depending on what country the person is from who's describing this, what units they use in the laboratory where they measure it, um, if I measured this distance in feet instead of meters, I would have had a distance, uh, some units here that would have looked totally different. So it's sometimes hard to interpret what a number means. So if you can find some reference that people are familiar with and express it as how many times larger than or smaller than that reference, then it has more universal meaning. And so that's why it's done. It's not to say one's right or one's wrong. Yeah? That's, that's right. Okay, um, look at another amusement park ride. So lots of things going in circles at the amusement park. Uh, here's a roller coaster going over a loop. And I wanna find the acceleration when the roller coaster is at three, or I guess four different points along the loop. And for this example, we're gonna treat the roller coaster as if it's not a long train of cars, but just a single, single point moving across the loop. Okay, so let's draw a diagram here. We'll treat the loop as being a circle because I'm told it has a radius r. So that's a good approximation to the shape of the loop. Let me draw the roller coaster at 9, 12, 3, and 6 o'clock position. So if this is 9 o'clock, this is the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and the 6 o'clock position. What's different about those positions? Well, yeah, so they're 90 degrees apart. Is the thing's moving in a different direction in each one of those, right? Um, the, acceleration, the acceleration pulling in a circle is always inwards, but the acceleration due to gravity is always pointing down. Okay, so some, at this point here, the acceleration due to gravity is pointing down, but there's still some upward acceleration. Over here, the directions switch. Okay, so as the coaster moves around the circle, 
um, the effect of gravity is acting in different directions. Okay, so the fact that gravity is pulling it down here Well, it pulls it down at every point. Will affect the overall acceleration. It's moving in a circle. So, what else should I add to my diagram? Is there anything that I can write down right now that I already know? Okay. The acceleration is v squared over r. And that's the negative r hat direction. And that's the component of the acceleration pointing towards the center of the circle. Okay, That's for an object moving at constant speed. Right? Is a roller coaster going to move at a constant speed when it goes over this? No. So where is it going to be moving the slowest? At the top. Okay, Gravity slows it down as it goes up, and then it speeds it up as it goes down. So it's going to move fastest down here and slowest up there not moving at a constant speed. So what I'm going to say is that the acceleration is not, well, the acceleration is going to change as it goes around the circle because the velocity is going to change. And this is the component that causes it to move in a circle. So I put that little c there. That's the component in the centripetal direction or towards the center of the circle. There will be a tangential component that causes its speed to change. Okay, So this is the component of the acceleration causing the direction to change. It makes it go in a circle. There will also be a component causing it to speed up or slow down. I don't know what that is right now. But let's consider all four cases. Okay, At the 3 o'clock position, The object has an inward acceleration that has a magnitude of v squared over r. What is its tangential acceleration here? What is pulling it downwards? Gravity. gravity right? So there's an acceleration due to gravity. It has a magnitude g and points down. And I have both those things. I have gravity acting on it. Just because it's moving in a circle doesn't mean there's no gravity. Um, but I also know that it has to be accelerating inward with this magnitude in order to stay moving in a circle. So I have to have both of these things. And I can do that if the total acceleration looks like that. Okay, So that it has a component in towards the circle of magnitude v squared over r and a component that's tangential, it's magnitude g. And so if, if it's moving around the loop counterclockwise, it's slowing down, which is what we said we thought would happen. Gravity is slowing it down because there's a component of the acceleration opposite the motion. So you can work out the magnitude of this is going to come from considering a right triangle where the magnitude of this is the hypotenuse of that triangle 
direction we could find from trigonometry. But mostly right now, I'm just interested in showing that graphically we can draw the acceleration as being not completely in towards the center of the circle because it's not just moving in a circle, it's also slowing down. Okay, so if once we've done that, we can probably do the other parts of the problem pretty easily. Um, at 12 o'clock, what is the acceleration pulling it towards the center of the circle? Zero? G? Any other? Voices want to chime in? We haven't gotten the right answer yet. Well, it's v squared over r. Okay, if something's moving in a circle, the component of the acceleration pointing in towards the center of the circle is v squared over r. So why don't I add g to that? I know that gravity is pulling it down. What is that? Well, so there, there's a rail here that may be acting on it too, but that doesn't take gravity away. The reason is this is what the acceleration has to be, but it's, it's caused by gravity. So gravity is pulling on it, pulling it down. The tracks may be pulling it up or pushing it down, depending on how fast it's going. And when you add up the acceleration due to gravity and due to all these different things, the net result is that this is what its acceleration has to be. Okay, so anytime something's moving in a circle, this is its centripetal acceleration. All the other things that act on it We'll learn when we start talking about forces. Add up together, and when we add them all up, their total effect has to produce whatever given acceleration we have. And in this case, that given acceleration is v squared over r. What about at the 6 o'clock position? What does its acceleration look like at the 6 o'clock position? Same thing as at 3? The acceleration has to be pointing inward. That's up. And its magnitude has to be v squared over r in order for it to be going in a circular path. It has to be. The fact that gravity is pulling it down just means that the tracks have to push it up harder so that when those two things add up, they produce an upwards acceleration. Okay, so the 9 o'clock position.
What does the acceleration look like? There's still an inward component of v squared over r. Okay, so now gravity is no longer pointing along the uh, radial direction. It's pointing down. So it's, it doesn't contribute to this component. It contributes to the tangential component. It speeds up the roller coaster. So the net acceleration is the vector sum of those. Okay, so let's say you're unfortunate enough to be on this roller coaster when the track broke. Let's say you take off the top left hand portion of the loop and the roller coaster goes around and gets to the top. Which direction is it going to go once it leaves the track? One, two, or three. Okay, it's moving in direction two. So it's going to keep moving in direction two. There's no longer tracks pushing it down to make it go in a circle. So it'll keep going in direction two. Eventually it'll curve down due to gravity. So you could argue, well, three, it's kind of like three, but it's going to keep going in a straight line. There's no longer tracks pushing it, pushing it down. So gravity causes it to, to curve down. Let's do another example. So a Ferris wheel, these are all carnival rides. A Ferris wheel is going in a circular path, or, or a point on the rim is traveling in a circular path. It has a constant speed, the point on the rim of seven meters per second. We can ask, what's the acceleration of a passenger at the lowest point on the ride? We've already solved this. We've already at least worked it out. For the roller coaster at the bottom of the loop, we said its acceleration was upwards with a magnitude of v squared over r. So we have the same thing here. We have an object going in a vertical circle. At the bottom of that circle, its acceleration is upwards and has a magnitude of v squared, that's 7 meters per second squared, divided by r, and there's r. We could work it out for the top as well. The magnitude will be the same, the direction will be different, right? it'll be pointing down. But we have the same value for V, because it's moving at a constant speed, same radius R. How much time does it take the passenger to go around once? We worked that out as well. To go around a circle, the distance you travel is 2 pi R. The speed is 7 meters per second. We can work out the time.
So really, this problem looks a lot like the last one we did, a little bit like the one before that, and that's because they all involve things moving in circles. And when things move in circles, we have the same, we have the same relationship every time. Okay, so the first thing you want to do when you see an object moving in a circular path is write this down. Because you're going to use this at some point during the problem. Good question. Is the acceleration at the lowest point and the highest point the same? How many people would say yes? How many people would say no? Okay, so Zhang Zhang, why not? the direction changes, right? The magnitude will be the same. In both cases, the magnitude is v squared over r. But at the bottom, the acceleration is pointing up. At the top, the acceleration is pointing down. Okay, and since direction is part of what we mean when we say acceleration, if the direction changes, then the acceleration changes. Yes? So we said that an object that's traveling as a projectile, that's flying through the air, the y component of the velocity is zero at the peak of its trajectory. Um, and that's true here as well. When the object gets to the top, its vertical component of velocity is zero. Okay? It has to be, or else it wouldn't be at the top. Um, but if it's moving at a constant speed of seven meters per second, then it might not be moving up at that point. Instead, it's moving to the right. Yeah, I guess it's moving to the right at that point at seven meters per second. So you're right that the y component is zero, but that just means the x component is this. And what we care about is the magnitude. Okay. And so regardless of whether the velocity is pointing up or pointing to the right, what we care about is how fast is it moving? And that hasn't, that's the same at any point along the rim. Any more questions? Uh, what is the acceleration? Is there a coefficient of acceleration greater at the highest point or the lowest point acceleration? Where is the acceleration the greatest? Uh, beta. Well, okay, yeah. So the acceleration is, the magnitude is the same at right. both points. We just argued that, right? right? So we'd say the magnitude is the same at both points. Where in the circle is the magnitude of the acceleration the largest? And the, I'll give you a hint. It's not at the top or the bottom. Okay, yeah, 3 and 9. Because the radial component always has the same magnitude. But at 3 and 9 o'clock, there's also a tangential component. And the vector sum then is a little bit larger than just the radial component. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, and talk about relative velocity. Do a couple example problems. Um, there's a lot of instances where we're told how fast something is moving, and that's a necessary parameter in the problem. But the person who's measuring how fast the object is moving is not the same person who wants to calculate something. And to say that in more specific scientific terms, 
Oftentimes, we're given the velocity of something in one reference frame. We want to compute its behavior in another reference frame. So we use the word reference frame. That means um, that's the coordinate axis that you measure things with respect to. So a simple example of that is a woman walking on a train. The train's moving. Right? So the woman's walking at a reasonable pace, let's say uh, one meter per second. That's not super fast. But the train may be moving at 20 meters per second. Therefore, this guy over here on the ground sees her going by at 21 meters per second. Right? He sees her moving very fast. Now, she wouldn't say she's moving very fast because she's going to measure her speed most likely with regards to her surroundings. In, with respect to a reference frame that's fixed to the train, a coordinate system that's fixed to the train that's moving. So in order to know how fast she's moving, we need to know two things. We need to know, know how fast she is moving. We'll call her person, P, relative to the train, which we're going to call B. So we need to know the velocity of the person with respect to the train. So when you see the uh, velocity symbol with two subscripts, we generally read that the velocity of point P with respect to point B, or with respect to reference frame B. Okay, so we need to know how fast she's going with respect to the train, how fast the train's going with respect to the ground. Okay, if the ground is labeled point A, the train is labeled point B, so we need to know the velocity of the person with respect to B, the velocity of B with respect to A. And if we add those things up, we get how fast she's moving as measured by someone on the ground. Okay, and that's a pretty simple example. It's one-dimensional, and we can probably very easily imagine that she's moving slowly with respect to the train, the train's going fast, we see her moving fast. Um, if she were walking backwards, like so the train's going to the right and she's walking to the left, in this example, what would be her speed relative to the ground? 19. Right? 19 meters. So I'm making up some numbers. I, I was saying the train's moving at 20 meters per second to the right. If she's moving at one meter per second backwards, then her net velocity is 19. So that's, that's what relative <coughs> velocity is. Um, in one dimension, we don't really need to think that much about it. It, it likely kind of makes sense. Um, but it's useful to have this, this vector definition of the velocity of point P with respect to reference frame A as the velocity of point P with respect to reference frame B plus the velocity of reference frame B with respect to reference frame A. We use that as a vector definition. We can do some problems that are much less obvious in two or three dimensions. Okay, so an airplane's compass reads due north. Okay, so the plane is pointed north. But if there's a crosswind, then it's not going to move north. Right? The propeller is causing it to fly north with respect to what? What is the airplane pushing against that's causing it to move? Air. Right? That air itself is moving. Right? So if, if the airplane... If this weren't an airplane, just a hot air balloon floating, it wouldn't be stationary. Right? It would be moving to the right, or to the east, at 100 kilometers per hour. So the fact that it's flying north, or it's, it's pointing north while flying, just means that in addition to moving to the right at 100 kilometers per hour, it's also moving north at whatever airspeed the airspeed indicator 
indicate. In this example, we'll say that's 240 kilometers per hour. So you might want to know what is the velocity of the plane not measured by the instrument gauges inside the airplane, but in terms of how far it moves across the Earth in a given length of time, say in an hour. So we want to know the speed of the plane with respect to the ground. The instruments on the plane tell us its airspeed, its speed with respect to the air. And on the ground, we've got an instrument telling us the speed of the air with respect to the ground. So this is a relative velocity problem. And we can use this same formula that we used for one dimension. And just take advantage of the fact that this is a vector expression. Okay? So the velocity, we want the velocity of the plane with respect to the ground. So I'll write that as V sub PG. And that's the velocity of the plane with respect to the air plus the velocity of the air with respect to the ground. And I'm told these different vectors. Okay? I have some numbers for them. I cannot just add up these numbers. Okay? I, if I plug in 240 kilometers per hour, as the airspeed of the plane, and I plug in 100 kilometers per hour as the airspeed with respect to the ground, and I get 340 kilometers per hour, I've done it incorrectly. Okay, despite the fact that it seems to follow this equation. What's wrong with what I did? There's a square root involved, right? So what's another carry? You have yeah, I've neglected the directions. I've neglected the fact that these are vectors, and I've added them like they were just scalars. Okay, I can't do that. Two vectors pointing in the same direction. Yes, their magnitudes add. If they point in opposite directions, I can't do that. So let me. Let me add them as vectors. And when you add things as vectors, it's very helpful to draw a diagram and do it graphically. So I have a vector that's 240 kilometers per hour pointing to the north, and one that's 100 kilometers per hour pointing to the east. And so the, the vector sum of those is the velocity of the plane with respect to the ground. Right, so this was the plane with respect to the air, and this was the air with respect to the ground. So I'm trying to find the hypotenuse of this triangle. What's squared? I think that's right. Well, I, I will have to do that to calculate this. Right, so the magnitude of this I can find from the Pythagorean theorem. I'll square each one, yeah. I get it going 260 kilometers per hour. 
first thing that's interesting here is uh, the plane's not flying in the direction of the wind, yet it ends up going faster. That's kind of interesting. It's traveled a greater distance than if, if it just traveled 200, if, it, if you consider how far it would go in one hour, it would have gone 240 kilometers without any wind. With the crosswind, it also travels some distance to the east. As a result, it travels a greater distance in the same amount of time, so it's going faster. Um, so that's just the magnitude of this. In order to completely specify that, I need to, a direction as well. Okay, so I can say, there's a lot of ways I can, I can find theta now. Um, I could say the sine of theta is this length over this length. Or I could say the cosine of theta is this length over this length. I'm not going to do either of those. I'm going to use tangent. Tangent of theta is this over this. They, they should all give me the same, same value. And if that's the case, then why is one better than the other? Why am I going to use tangent here? Yeah. I, I'm given these two values, so I know those are right. Whereas if I try to use, say, sine theta is, is VAG over VPG, this quantity here I had to calculate, and I might have made a mistake in calculating it. So if I can avoid using that, I should. And if I can calculate it with, with only known quantities, that's what I'll do. Okay, so this works out to give me 23 degrees. And I need to express what 23 degrees means. In this case, it means east of north. So it's likely that you might be in a situation that's sort of the opposite, where there's a 100 kilometer per hour eastward wind. And this time, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fly the plane somewhere that's due north. And we know that if we point the plane due north and we fly, that's not where we're going to end up, right? The crosswind is going to push us, push us aside, like in the last problem. So evidently, we need to point sort of into the wind. We could do the same type of analysis. Now here, the airspeed of the plane is at a different angle. And I want the final ground speed to point north. So it's a similar problem. I have the airspeed of the plane plus the speed of the air with respect to the ground gives me the speed of the plane with respect to the ground. And if I want that to point north, I could ask, what angle need, do I need to fly? So your first guess might be, well, it should be about 23 degrees the other direction. And that's about right. It's not exactly right. Um, we could work this out. Here we need this angle. We need the sine of that angle to be 100 over 240, which isn't exactly the same as the tangent being 100 over 240. But it's close. We get an angle that's almost 23 degrees. It's uh, 25 degrees in this example. Okay, I'm not going to work that out on the board. What I am going to do is I'm going to look at that airplane 
in order to make some sense of the physics, I'm going to ask what has to be going on. When we angle this airplane, um, we know that there's a 100 kilometer per hour easterly wind. We know that the plane is capable of flying at 240 kilometers per hour. So how do we how do we decide how far we need to tilt the airplane? We can talk about it in terms of this triangle and this diagram and the trigonometry. There's another way to, to think about it. What is the easterly component of this plane's velocity? Well, this airspeed has a component that's pointing north and a component that's pointing, in this example, west. And what I need is, I need that westerly component to cancel the airspeed that's pushing on it. Okay, so I need this to be 100 kilometers per hour. And as a result, the northerly speed is, is somewhat reduced from its maximum value. So just another way of thinking about it. Um, but it's really useful to use this vector equation for relative velocity. We can argue that from one dimensional sort of common sense that that expression makes sense and we can apply it in two dimensions to consider much more uh, complex examples. Uh, let's do one more example. You're driving your car, it's raining. The rain is falling at 14 miles per hour. How fast do you need to drive so that your back window stays dry? Why would your back window stay dry? So we're driving, let's see, the rain's coming straight down. The car's moving to the left. In the reference frame of the car, so if you're a passenger, which direction does it look like the rain is falling? Does it look like it's falling straight down? No, it looks like it's falling at an angle. And if that angle is steeper than the windshield, right? With respect to the car, the rain's coming in at an angle. If it's steeper than the windshield, it won't have a chance to hit the windshield. Okay, so what we have is the velocity of the rain with respect to the ground. And we're told that's uh, 14 miles per hour. And when I, I want to add to that the velocity of the ground with respect to the car in order to get the velocity. So let me write out this, this equation. What I want is I want the velocity of the rain with respect to the car. So that's the velocity of the rain with respect to the ground plus the velocity of the ground with respect to the car. Sometimes it's useful to write that out first thing. I'm given this. I'm told a little bit about this. What do I want the velocity of the rain with respect to the car to be? What angle do I want it to be falling at with respect to the car? I want it to be slanted at least 40 degrees. So let me solve for the case where this angle is 40 degrees. And this vector here is the velocity of the rain with respect to the car. I don't know its magnitude, but I do know that the velocity of the ground with respect to the car 
I know which direction that acts. The car is, in this example, moving to the left. The ground is moving to the right with respect to someone in the car. The ground is moving to the right with respect to the car. And that, I can kind of figure out then how long this, this vector needs to be. It needs to be long enough so that it ends up horizontally displaced from that point. I don't know this length, though. That's what I'm trying to find out. So now what I know is I know this vector completely. I know this angle. Yeah, I can use tangent. I can say tangent of 40 degrees is VGC over 14 miles per hour. I can solve that. Cars to be going at least 18 miles per hour. That's what I see. So, I mean, these numbers aren't unrealistic. That's actually the terminal velocity of rain. 40 degree windshield is kind of tilted, but if you have, I actually just measured that from this picture of the car. So, if your car looks like that, you can very easily drive at a speed where your rear windshield won't get wet. Okay, so before we leave, we learned a bunch of new terms today. Let's just remind ourselves what they mean. Uh, what is tangential acceleration? What does that mean? Yeah, and so what does it do to an object? It speeds it up or slows it down. What is, yeah, it speeds up or slows down. What does radial acceleration do? Changes the direction. This is the acceleration component that's perpendicular to motion. It's also called centripetal acceleration. So these two terms are the same. Uh, what does reference frame mean? The reference frame is your coordinate system. Okay, it's the it's what you measure everything with respect to. So the ref the when we talk about somebody walking on a train, measuring how fast they're moving, they're probably measuring their speed relative to the train. The train is they're in the reference frame of the train. Their speed is one meter per second. So the reference frame is, is where your coordinate system is. And then relative velocity. Yeah, so it's the velocity of an object in one reference frame with respect to the velocity in a different reference frame. Okay, um, I will see you guys next week. And I will have office hours now if anyone wants to go over some of the homework problems.